Hello and welcome to the RI Science Podcast. Frankenstein's creature is a classic example of a monster in popular culture. But what can fictional beings tell us about the hopes and fears of the society in which they were created? This month, Phil Ball chairs a panel of experts discussing how monsters survive in our culture, how they reflect gender and power dynamics, and what happens in our brains when we see monsters on screen. I think nothing lays bare our changing perceptions about uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein than how we depict and think about the creature that Victor Frankenstein creates. He's a key presence throughout the novel. In fact, he narrates the central section of the novel, and yet he's given no name. Uh, we're not even sure whether to call him a creature or a monster or a person. Anyone coming to the book from a background gathered uh, through Hollywood or the Hammer films um, that began, of course, with, with Boris Karloff. Um, not completely began, actually. There were earlier films, but the most iconic is Boris Karloff's uh, creature. Well, they're in for a shock because, of course, the creature in Shelley's novel is very different. It's uh, not just vocal, but eloquently so. Um, he is a being who derives not just his language, but his sense of self from, amongst other things, reading John Milton's Paradise Lost. So the transformation from this articulate being with glossy black hair to the grunting, green-skinned and flat-headed brute of James Whale's 1931 movie tells us a lot about what to expect when we, um, about what we expect and what we demand our monsters to be. And that transformation wasn't Whale's invention. In fact, it happened as soon as Frankenstein started to be adapted to dramatic performance. So that even in an early stage performance like this one from 1826 by Henry Milner called uh, Frankenstein or the man and the monster. Even here you see the creature is already this shambling, mute, beast-like creature. And you can see straight away too that there are racial overtones here. That this creature is a savage and is depicted as though on a lower evolutionary rung than its maker. And throughout the 19th century, Frankenstein's creature served not so much as a metaphor of science gone wrong, which is how we seem to view the book today, but as a representation of what might happen if cultures and races deemed inferior gained the upper hand. And so we see depictions of the monster as the working class, as the people of Ireland, or as the black slaves of America. And it's fairly clear, I think, what uh, fears these versions of the monster are feeding. Now, I've been calling the monster him, and I think it's clearly implied in the book that that is the gender of the being that Frankenstein creates. And yet, the sex and the sexuality of the monster are a pervading source of disquiet throughout the book. Amongst the boundaries that this creature challenges and arguably transgresses are those of gender. He's a liminal being, I think an early representative of the creature in a post-gender world that the feminist critic Donna Haraway depicts in her famous Cyborg Manifesto. And as such, the creature has been in recent years fruitfully examined from the perspective of what is known as queer theory, which examines notions of normative and deviant categories in sexual and gender identities. And that 
too, of course, suggests reasons why the monster has been unsettling to us. And these, again, aren't modern readings, I don't think. They are there very much in Shelley's imagination, which explores issues of sexuality, desire, and repulsion. It's a horror of the thought of monster sex, of course, that leads Victor to commit the act that finally uh, leads his creature to wreak terrible revenge. Um, not quite the revenge, actually, that the people who set the uh, GCSE this year in English seem to think. I don't know if any of you saw that apparently the, the pupils were asked in the GCSE uh, a question about what happens after Victor is killed by his creature, which is a bit kind of scary. But anyway, increasingly now, our, sympath our sympathies lie with the monster. And when the book is read by students of literature today, if not by the people who set exams, it's common for them to be invited to condemn Victor Frankenstein unreservedly and to see the creature as a kind of wronged victim. And in movies like I, Frankenstein, the creature has actually become the hero, no longer this horrible sort of green-faced, bolt-necked thing, but actually sort of ruggedly attractive. Um, and all of this makes Frankenstein the urtext for examining our modern relationship with monsters. And that's what we'll be doing tonight. And with me to do that is a fantastic panel of speakers. Um, uh, on my far right, Liz Gloyne is in the Department of Classics at Royal Holloway University of London. And one of her interests is the ways in which classical monsters appear in popular culture. Evan Hales Gledhill is in the Department of Humanities at the University of Reading, and Evan studies representations of the body and standards of normativity, especially in the context of Gothic literature and narratives of monstrosity. And then Jeremy Skipper is an experimental psychologist at UCL who studies the, usually I, I gather you study the neurobiology of language use, but Jeremy has also used neuroimaging techniques to understand what's going on in our brains when we do things like read books and watch horror films. So uh, each uh, of the speakers is going to speak for about 10 minutes on uh, what they do and how it relates to our theme tonight. And then we'll have a short discussion followed by opening up to questions from you. So first of all, um, I'll hand over to Liz. So uh, I, as a classicist sort of being asked to do this, come to the Royal Institution, I sort of found myself thinking, am I in the right place? And I had a moment of browsing the shelves before where everyone sort of came in. I was delighted to see there's an Oxford Classical Dictionary, a pride of place over there, so I feel, I feel very much at home. Um, so let's start with a very quick show of hands. So how many people here have watched a film with special effects done by Ray Harryhausen? Looking pretty good. Some people being a bit nervous on whether they've seen something or not, right? So Harryhausen, even if you've not seen his work, you know what he's done. Um, because he's become an iconic maker of monsters. If you've seen anything by Guillermo del Toro, he is, Harryhausen is the ur monster maker. He is the guy everybody goes back to. His vision has really shaped the imagination of what we think monsters look like now. He brought a whole range of amazing creatures to life, including dinosaurs, uh, the mythical eastern rock, various sorts of aliens, and a giant octopus who actually only had six legs for reasons of managing to not make it fall over. Um, his Medusa, uh, as far as I know, she's the first one to actually get a snaky tail. Previously, the Medusa did not have a tail, but if you think of Medusa now, most of the time, you're going to think of her with a tail, and that's down to Harryhausen. Um, 
Despite appearing in The Crash of the Titans, uh, which was a retelling of the Perseus myth, his evocative Kraken actually came out of Norse mythology. Uh, the screenwriter for the film, however, felt, and I quote Carrie Housen here, that as a name for a sea monster, it was too good to miss. <laughs> um, so Harryhausen had this range of monstrous traditions to draw on, which he happily did, um, not to mention all the possibilities uh, that science fiction gave him, uh, but he kept on coming back to classical monsters. Why? Why does anybody in the modern world keep on coming back to them? Um, why, in the wake of the Lego Batman movie, can we now purchase a Lego Medusa? <laughs> I have her on my desk, and she's awesome. Um, but how you define a monster, how you decide what a monster is, is complicated. So, for instance, connoisseurs of collectible Barbie dolls could purchase a pre-transformation Medusa back in uh, 2000, 2008, I think this was. Um, so she's sort of much more like the famous Mycenaean snake goddess statues. You can sort of see a direct link in sort of the iconography there, um, rather than a st uh, fiercer monster. But you can see what she's going to be. She's got the snake arm cuffs. She's got the snaky, curly hair. She's got this evocative fishtail skirt, which sort of looks a bit more like a tail rather than legs. Um, so you can see she's going to be a monster, and that, that is why we, we're interested in her. Um, so it's not enough just to sort of have a list of monsters and say, this is what a monster is. This is what we need to know how we can tell that what we're looking at actually is monstrous. So, for instance, uh, while hermaphrodites are now an understood medical phenomenon, uh, for the Romans, they were monstra. Uh, they were to be thrown into the sea at the first opportunity. Um, because monstrum, uh, which is the word for these, th that was used for these kinds of people, um, were is the root of our word, mo word monster, comes from the Latin, and it means something that warns us. It's a portent, a portent to be respected, to be dealt with appropriately. Um, and the, the Romans sort of thought that these were ways of um, the gods telling people what needed to be done, ways of averting God's disfavour and that sort of thing. But that comes back to the idea that a monster arises from society's very deepest fears. And I've got a bit of text up here. I'm not going to do too much with this, but this is sort of... Jeffrey Cohen's really fundamental theses about what, how we sort of start thinking about monsters. And as he sort of says, a culture defines what shape the monster it gives birth to takes. So the shape of a monster is defined by what a culture is scared of. Uh, we can be frightened of the uncategorized, that which doesn't fit into the neat box, like the Frankenstein's monster, you know, half dead, half alive, which is it, over that liminal boundary. Um, it can be the unfamiliar, the present other, um, sort of seen very nicely by the way that we have in those examples of Frankenstein becoming other people who are not like us, who the cartoonists thought were looking at these cartoons. Um, it can be both feared and desired in that role. Uh, it can come out of the need for a policeman, sort of something to mark the limits of the acceptable and the normal. Um, with all that in mind... Where does that leave creatures like the Minotaur, the Harpy, the Siren, the Centaur, who all come out of ancient Greek consciousness? So what do the fears and concerns of ancient Greece have to say to us now? Why are we still scared of them? If a monster comes into being because of those fears and concerns deep inside a culture which created it, when does a Minotaur stop being truly monstrous and just become a curiosity instead? Or to put it another way, when does the Hydra become a cuddly toy? 
Now, I think the monster is the answer. Sorry, is found in the monster's endless flexibility and resilience, like the constantly returning vampire. You've always think you've done it with the stake. No, no, <laughs> you just drop that virgin's blood in the wrong place, and he's back again. The monster can constantly reshape itself to haunt the culture that is using it, not just the culture that created it. So there's this fine line in between a classical monster being used because it's a necessary evil. You can't tell the Theseus story without there being a minotaur in there somewhere. Um, and a monster who becomes fearsome because it's allowed to become that sort of reconstituted embodiment of ghastliness and horror rather than just a, look what we found in Myth 101. Right? It's actually letting it have some space to breathe. Um, classical monsters draw us in at the same time as they repel us. Just like we read ancient myths wanting to encounter these beasts up close, but not quite too close. Film offers us the perfect place to come even closer to the monster. We can see its slathering jaws, we can shudder at its hybrid transgressions, and all the while we're safe in the knowledge that it's only a film, it'll be finished soon, we can leave the cinema. So when we encounter a classical monster in popular culture, is it there to frighten us, to fascinate us, or to do both? Well, this is always going to depend a little bit on the nature of the place where we meet the monster. Seeing a Harryhausen version is very different to reading about a monster in a novel, in a myth sort of storybook, or indeed seeing a monster that's been generated by CGI. Uh, Harryhausen used claymation, which that, yeah, I, I'm going to assume as a wild punt, most people have seen Wallace and Gromit. Yeah, nods, good. Um, so Wallace and Gromit and the, the claymation sort of kind of animating style is what Harry Howes had really pioneered to make his monsters work. Most of the stuff you're going to see now in popular culture is CGI a go-go. Um, and the chimera who turns up in Wrath of the Titans, the rebooted version... <coughs> I could comment, I'm resisting... Um, <laughs> nicely illustrates sort of the danger of being seduced by CGI, of being drawn in. So the designers really here, they've, they've paid attention, they've read their Hesiod. Gives us a really good description of what a chimera looks like. It's got a lion's head at the front, dragon's head at the back, a goat's head somewhere in the middle. Um, Hesiod is not specific. Um, and they've taken sort of the evidence um, and they've put together this two-headed thing with a head on the end of its tail. It's actually sort of a bitey mouthy thing it'll do um, that sort of uh, can breathe petrol from one head fire from the other creates fireballs brilliant lovely but instead of using the chimera's own really rich mythical history i mean it's sort of part of a really important part of a sort of a, its own legend rather than use that in the film it's dumped into the film's narrative as a sign of something is up we know things are going to go badly because there's this thing there's a whole YouTube video on you, uh, from the production team about what, how they decided they were going to make this as scary as possible and how frightening they were going to make it and how much care went into designing it. In the actual film, the word chimera is never actually used. It turns up, it gets slaughtered, and within about four and a half minutes, we're on to per, um, Perseus sort of sitting, brooding, in a kind of, that doesn't normally happen, something must be wrong kind of way. Um, so rather than allowing the chimera to come to life, CGI really has frozen it. Every, all, every single one of these lovingly realised feathers and little bits of fur um, are coming from this desire to be ultra-faithful to the original, to make it look like the chimera really looked. Um, but instead, the monster becomes pathetic. Um, it becomes a fetish of the digital artist. It doesn't really serve any narrative function. Um, 
So instead, it's sort of desperately wanting to show off knowledge, but totally failing to do anything useful with it. Uh, its sole purpose is to be displayed freak-like and then killed, and then the film moves on, as unfortunately must we. Sorry, Chimera. Contrast this with the role of monsters in the 2014 Hercules. This had Dwayne The Rock Johnson in the title role. If you haven't seen it, it is of joy. Um, <laughs> the plot itself is pretty monster three. Uh, free rather. Hercules and his team of mercenaries are hired by King Cotis of Thrace. Supposedly, they, they, he wants them to train up his army in self-defence against these terribly nasty people. What a surprise when he turns out to actually have world domination of Greece in mind instead. Who would have seen that coming? Um, the monsters mainly appear in an opening sequence telling the familiar tales of the Hydra, the Arimathean boar, the Nemean lion... But they actually turn out to be stories that are being told by Hercules' nephew to pirates who are holding him captive. Um, the film intermittently punctures the ideas that monsters are real. Um, there's a scene where Hercule, Hercules returns with the Hydra heads. He opens the bag and it's a bunch of sort of human heads wearing uh, serpent masks, right? Um, no wonder men thought they were serpents, says the king, sort of sounding terribly pious and serious. Not chewing the scenery at all, oh no. Um, yet when the end of the film comes, uh, we get this possibility that Hercules might sort of be actually the son of Zeus. He performs a feat of more than superhuman strength at this point. Um, and then we get these closing credits, and they create the possibility that monsters might actually have been real after all. So what we get is we get this sort of, sort of orangey-yellowy-tinted rough CGI using this kind of wire work draft feel, so it's not quite finished. And it's exactly the same monster adventures that we had at the start of the film being narrated when we, we knew this was a story. Um, and we get them all again, but they don't reveal that the monster wasn't actually real. What we get instead is we get the role that Hercules' buddies played in helping to kill the monsters. So what we get is we get this sort of ambiguity about whether they're really there or not, but by never really showing a, a real monster encounter. Hercules gives classical monsters sort of the space to exist in that ambiguity between reality and story. It never quite commits. It's a really interesting film for sort of dancing around story and how story gets made and where truth actually lies. Um, and incidentally, by doing that, it avoids this sort of distancing effect of CGI. So, sort of coming back to the opening question of this talk, why do ancient monsters survive in the modern world? Well, I would argue that it helps to think of them a little bit like the snakes on Medusa's head. Um, they are all versions of Medusa and the Minotaur and so on. They all spring from the same place, but they, are, they have an independent life. They will all go where they feel like it. Um, they're restricted by their roots, so obviously the snakes on Medusa's head can't just crawl off and go and do something entirely in the different room. Um, but they have some freedom in finding new ways of existing and new ways of making themselves meaningful. Ancient monsters survive because they are supremely adaptable. Rather than becoming tied to the fears of the ancient Greeks and Romans, which generated them, they found ways to come through the shadows of the modern world. Thank you. There's me. So, Liz is a classicist who talks about classical monsters. I'm a gothicist, so I'm going to be talking about gothic monsters. What I do, um, and what I've been researching over the last few years, writing up my PhD thesis, is why do 
we have monsters in the Gothic. Why, do, why does the Gothic, as a literary genre, that developed in the 18th century and peaked in the early 19th century, why does it keep coming back? Why is it an undead genre that keeps rising from its own grave and then mining its own grave for its own bones, putting them together in a new form and letting it out into the world? It's very self-referential. The Gothic constantly refers to its own past and digs over its own bones. So when I got invited to come and talk to you about do fictional monsters reflect reality? I didn't want, but it ends up developing that way, to put them like this, fictional monsters versus reality. Well, of course, we all know that vampires don't really exist, and I'm not going to go into the medical development of porphyria as a disease that has all the symptoms. You'd uh, gums retract, so it looks like you have fangs. You're very sensitive to sunlight, so you burn. Your hairline recedes. And one of the traditional ways of helping somebody was to feed them lots of raw meat, because it's a blood disorder. So we can link our monsters to reality very directly in this sort of way. Fictional monster versus reality. We can try and look at what inspired us to create a monster that mimics a medical condition, and as Liz mentioned, intersex people map very likely onto the traditional monster idea of the hermaphrodite. And I want to look at why we monsterize difference rather than just calling it medical difference. Why did the 18th and 19th century start racial science to try and justify white Europeans being uh, at the top of the great chain of being, as they called it in those days. They created monsters, and they called it science. And this is something that we do a lot with our fictions. We try and explore, or I try and explore, in the literature departments and in the medical humanities, which is a growing area, the links between the books that are on the shelves here, which are called things like The Descent of Man and the myths and the stories that we tell ourselves. Because there's a lot more overlap than people might think. There's a lot of fiction in science and there's a lot of science in fiction. So, first of all, I want to take us back to the description of Mary Shelley's monster. I'm going to read it out. By the glimmer of the half-extinguished light, I saw the dull yellow eye of the creature open. It breathed hard, and a convulsive motion agitated its limbs. How can I describe my emotions at this catastrophe, or how delineate the wretch whom, with such infinite pains and care, I had endeavoured to form? His limbs were in proportion, and I had selected his features as beautiful. Beautiful, great God! His yellow skin scarcely covered the work of muscles and the arteries beneath. His hair was of a lustrous black and flowing, his teeth of a pearly whiteness but these seemed almost of the same colour as the dun white sockets in which they were set, his shrivelled complexion and his straight black lips. I beheld the wretch, the miserable monster whom I had created. His eyes, if eyes they may be called, were fixed on me. His jaws opened and he muttered some inarticulate sounds while a grin wrinkled his cheeks. No mortal could support the horror of that countenance. A mummy, again endued with animation, could not be so hideous as that wretch. I had gazed on him while unfinished. He was ugly then, 
But when those muscles and joints were rendered capable of motion, it became a thing such as even Dante could not have conceived. There's a lot more in and out of this. I've selected the parts that describe to us the body of the monster. Now, working from a different theoretical perspective from Liz, I work with, and I'm going to scare everybody now, the phrase is French post-structuralists. Nobody wants to hear about that. But these two theorists, Canguilhem, Georges Canguilhem, and Michel Foucault, are very famous these days. Canguilhem was a medical doctor as well as a philosopher. He was pretty hardcore and awesome. I think everybody should know about him, and I think he should be taught in medical school. Because he, he was a philosopher of the body. What does it mean to be normal? What does it mean to be healthy? He looked into these ideas. He wrote a book called On the Normal and the Pathological in the 40s, only got translated into English in the 60s, when he updated it with some genetic information that had come out then. And he talked about why we label and categorise our bodies and how we work with this in the medical sciences, but also how we think about them philosophically and in culture. And he wrote an article called On Monsters and the Monstrous, where he tried to define what a monster was in quite different terms from what Jeffrey Jerome Cohen did. And Foucault came along later and refined the categories. He was his doctoral student and then went off to have a whole career of being a philosopher after him and refined the categories. And he said that the monster transgresses four humanly constructed categories, the scriptural, the legal, philosophical, and the medical. So we can see all of those here in Mary Shelley, 100, 150 years before these guys started thinking about this. The dull yellow eye of the creature, it breathed hard and a convulsive motion agitated its limbs. Convulsion, 18th century word for having the shakes, an epileptic fit. We've already got the suggestion of unhealth here. Then we move on. The wretch that has been brought back. This idea that he was supposed to be beautiful, but isn't. The shriveled complexion of straight black lips, the lustrous black hair. We have this idea of possibly racial combinations that shouldn't be, with yellow skin, black hair, built from the charnel houses. Different bodies being put together. This idea of miscegenation, of something that should not have been brought together. The eyes, if they could be called that, his jaws. We've got these kind of animal <coughs> suggestions here. Instead of his mouth, it's his jaws. And he, can't, and he can't speak. He makes inarticulate sounds. And then we get to the mummy reanimated. The, the boundaries between life and death. Crossing medical, crossing religious, crossing legal boundaries. Is he alive? Is he dead? Is he human? Does he have rights? Do we know? All these boundaries are being crossed here. But why is this interesting? Why is this just not picking apart a text in a GCSE English classroom? Well, because this touches on lots of things that affect us all daily. Disability, race, gender, as Liz suggested. Who gets to be fully human? The monster spends the entire book chasing after Victor, saying, 
I want to be more. I want you to recognize me. He says, I should have been your Adam after reading Paradise Lost. I should have been a new human being, a new race. Victor says it as well. He's creating a new race. He would be there, he would be godlike, but he runs away from this creature. He won't give him language. He won't give him education. He doesn't give him any rights. He won't give him a mate. He refuses to build him a creature that he could have love with. And I think this becomes very, very obvious when we look at the adaptations through time. I'm going to look at Boris Karloff there. He can barely speak. It takes him a long time to learn, and he's got a pronounced lisp. He can barely say the word, and it's very moving when he does, but he finally pronounces the word friend. It's the one word that the monster says repeatedly in these films, friend. And his friends are killed. His friends are driven away from him, and he is driven away from other humans. The bolts on the neck. Surgical support for somebody. Is it that much different from a pacemaker now? Or a bionic arm? Those bolts that are holding your shin bone together after you broke it? Just made very obvious. The same with the scars. He's ugly. His head is not the right shape for what we consider to be normative. Well, that's not so very different from the way people used to respond to people with Down syndrome, who are considered not to be the right shape. We can see, and he's most of his time in a lab in these films, in James Wells' films. And when he escapes into the world, he doesn't fit in. He doesn't know how to behave like other people do. He can't form attachments. Not because he doesn't want to. Not because he isn't capable of love. But because other people won't let him. This is something that really echoes, I think, for a lot of people. And why people don't like Victor Frankenstein. We, Philip mentioned that we are being very much encouraged to view Frankenstein as the monster rather than his creature as the monster. Well, I think there's quite a good reason for that. He's not very nice. The poor monster. Yeah, he goes on a murderous rampage. But frankly, have any of you watched Dog Day Afternoon? Yep, the lead character in that is a gay man who goes on a murderous rampage as well. Lots of people have killed because they haven't been accepted, because they aren't loved. He's a little bit like a much more articulate school shooter, is Frankenstein. And I have a bit of sympathy for him. Not that I don't have, I don't have sympathy for Frankenstein too. So we've got a new version of the body very recently at the Royal Ballet, where they stripped back, instead of having obvious signs of disability and race, they stripped back to reveal what's underneath us all, to make him look more like a walking corpse, perhaps. Skin taken off to reveal what's below. And I think this one is an interesting version because it suggests that what's monstrous about the body is that knowing what's underneath the surface of the skin. We're a bit afraid. We're not just afraid of what other people look like differently. We're afraid of what's inside us. We don't have a lot of control over that. Is your heart going to pack it in one day while you're sitting on the number 29 bus? 
Do you have IBS? You can't control what's going on in your own body. And when we strip off the skin, we become frightened of our own flesh, of our own meat, of the gore of the charnel house, realizing it's us, realizing it's you walking around. The idea that there's a skeleton inside you, but you're also inside that skeleton. Your brain, your heart, your lungs are on the inside of that skeleton. I think it's a very interesting new take on Frankenstein. So the monster, Frankenstein's monster, can be read as a representative of what we fear, a projection. We make it look like the things that scare us. We make it look like people who are different from us. To try and push away, that's what's different. And call it a monster and say, that's not me, it is other. Or sometimes we look at something that is us and we look at what's frightening about life, ourselves. Being alone, being different, being judged, thinking about ourselves as living breathing creatures that will one day stop functioning, stop being healthy, stop being normal. Because it comes to us all. Disability is acquired by pretty much everybody by the time they get to the end of the life. Even if you got born without one, an acquired disability. So how does this help us understand why we continue to like gothic monsters? Well, another bodily identity, and one that I'm particularly interested in, the disability and queerness, because the two often go together. There's a theory called compulsory able-bodiedness, the idea that unless you see somebody with an aid, like a wheelchair, you will assume that their body is normative. And that implies that everybody has a standard of health and that anyone else fails to meet a standard of health. But actually... You can't tell from looking at somebody's body very often their medical history. We know that. Compulsory able-bodiedness suggests that looking normal, behaving normally, is an ideal that you should ascribe to. That if you can get rid of your walking stick, you should. If you can take your glasses off and put your contact lenses in, that's more attractive. That you shouldn't walk around with the stub of the arm you're missing on display. You should cover it over for other people's comfort. These are all ideas that we've all heard, we've all seen in the world. And this ties in with the idea that the body that you're supposed to find attractive should be in some way whole and normative. So this ties into compulsory heterosexuality. We also assume, well, maybe not myself, but a lot of people do, that when we meet someone, that they're straight and that being gay is abnormal, depending on your community. If you know more gay people, you assume someone's gay until told otherwise. But if you know mostly straight people, you all have to wait for a sign, for a lapel badge with a rainbow pin. Something like that, something that shows that someone's different. So these two ideas that we assume that people are normal until they tell us not. We assume a certain thing about us. is gonna lead me on to my final image, the Babadook. Now, this on the right is the poster for the horror movie The Babadook, showing the outline of a monster 
with big hair, splayed hands like claws, that preys on small children. A bit like the clown in It. And for some reason, at Pride a couple of years ago, the Babadook became a queer icon. He's Babashook. <laughs> there were gifts of the Babadook on Drag Race. There were Babadooks on posters of Pride, people dressed up as the Babadook. People made a lot of jokes about the Babadook and Pennywise as a queer couple. And some people in the gay community and the queer community got very angry. They said that this was a negative, a regressive way of representing ourselves. Why would we align ourselves with monsters that eat children? That's what, and I say, well, that's what everyone's been telling us we are. William Dannemeyer, who was a congressman, wrote an entire book about it in the 80s. It was quite popular. Shadow of the land. Homosexuals are coming to ruin your children. The Daily Mail still occasionally would uh, use the phrase predatory homosexual. Not sure what one of those is, quite frankly. I like the phrase practicing homosexual in case it is, though you need a bit of, you know, bit of expertise before you really go professional. So the Babadook as a monster that steals children. The queers adopted it to say, well, this is what you think of us? All right, we'll take the monster. We'll be the monster. Ooh, aren't we scary? And they wrote silly stories about how Pennywise and the Babadook were kidnapping children to give them better lives because queer children needed better parents than they had because the parents didn't love them and wouldn't understand them. The parents called them monsters. So the monster isn't just a reflection. It can also be a construct, deliberately. And although you get queer and disabled monsters constructed deliberately to demonize people who are different. I don't know if people have heard the phrase lavender menace. Lots of Hollywood movies in the 30s, 40s and 50s had queer coded villains, limp wrists, hissy little voices. And they were art collectors or something. It was coded that these were dangerous homosexuals, lavender menace. So on the one hand, you had people deliberately making monsters of people who are different. But on the other hand, we now have people who are different deliberately making monsters gayer as a protest movement. So do monsters reflect reality or do we reflect ourselves back into the monsters? Hmm, bit of both. Thank you very much. Okay, so, uh, yeah, my name is Jeremy Skipper, to remind you. I direct the Language Action and Brain Lab at University College uh, London. And I just want to say it's a, quite an honor to be able to present what I do to you and then later have a discussion with you about the neuroscience of film, perhaps. Um, and so what my lab does, what the Language Action and Brain Lab does, is try to understand how the brain processes information out in the real world. So how does the brain process information in the blooming, buzzing confusion that we interpret as reality when we get everything presented to our senses all at once? And this isn't how most neuroscientists study the brain. And in the process of doing so, we use uh, as stimuli written books, uh, audiobooks, and films because these mediums are something that you guys all experience as reality all the time. Uh, in fact, you spend a lot of time with these medium, 
uh, even though your brains weren't actually structured or they didn't evolve to process this information. Uh, and second, film presents uh, the whole range of what we consider human reality. So it presents some more or less realistic version of our emotional processes, our facial processing, our cognitive functions like attention and memory, and even more uh, fantastical things uh, that have to do with creativity. Um, um, so it's all there in film, more or less. So this is why we use these stimuli, or these medium as stimuli. And how do we study the human brain while watching film, for example? Well, we put people in something that looks quite menacing, um, an MRI. So this is a magnetic resonance imaging tool, which we've had for quite some time. But in the mid-90s, we got the ability to take the pictures of your brain while it's processing information. So while you're doing things like processing faces, processing language. And we basically take a picture, uh, in my case, about once every second about, of, of what's happening in your brain. And in particular, what we're measuring is blood flow. So whenever you use a piece of your brain that's involved in, say, some cognitive function, like remembering something, your brain is quite clever, and it shuttles up some extra blood to that region when you're done processing to replenish the region, to put it simplistically. So we stuff people in these scanners, and uh, we make them watch films. No given brain region processes the information in the film. We have what we call networks of brain regions that are working together to do specific functions in parallel. So you have a network of brain regions, for example, that are involved in fear processing, extracting information from the stimuli and determining, from the movie, and determining whether it's a fearful sequence. Um, it's my job as a neuroscientist to be able to pick apart those networks and give them a label and say, this network's processing faces, this one's processing uh, emotional information, this one's um, doing something else. All right, so I said it's my job to figure out what's happening in that blooming, buzzing confusion of brain activity. So we use a bunch of statistical techniques to extract out brain networks uh, for processing different kinds of information. And without going into the approaches, we use machine learning approaches, uh, so artificial intelligent approaches to label the network, and we also, and we do that using annotations, uh, machine learning annotations of the films themselves. So we figure out everything that's happening in, in the film, so we have a robot go into the film and label all the faces for you. Uh, and then we go and label face processing regions uh, uh, in the brain. We don't know much about, so don't be fooled by any neuroscientists, we know very little about how the brain works, and particularly we know, we know very, very, very little about how the brain, uh, all these networks interact with one another. We don't know how they all uh, play off on each other, and so that's why my lab studies what it does using films. So I want to bring this back to something that you may have picked up on as I was talking, uh, and there are several examples of this, uh, that fiction, whatever form it is in, activates the same networks in your brains as they do in real life. So uh, fiction may activate fear circuits and empathy circuits for uh, scary films, and I, I want to give a, an example of that. Uh, that I think it makes this point, just really drives this point home. And, and we've scanned people, we don't just scan people watching films, we scan people listening to audiobooks as well. And I want to show you some clips 
uh, from the audiobook uh, a, a Game of Thrones, which is a 33-hour uh, audiobook, but I'm just going to show you the brain activity, not for all 33 hours, but for uh, one small chunk of Ned Stark. Sorry, I hope this isn't a spoiler alert. <laughs> where Ned Stark gets beheaded. Um, and keep in mind, this is an audio beheading. So this is a set of networks that are active that we know are involved and we've labeled with our machine learning approaches as being object processing regions. So we have a network of brain regions that are, that are visual and visual cortex that are processing objects. But this is an audio telling of a story. So that means in some sense you're really simulating what's happening. So I don't know what objects are being simulated in this network yet, but we could say maybe an axe or something. Um, we have also going crazy in the brain are action processing networks. So you're listening to a story, but you're engaging all of these areas in blue are regions that you yourself would move, used to move your whole body around in space. So you, and, and again, I don't know what actions are being simulated in this network, but some actions related to this scene are being simulated. So perhaps the swinging of an axe. And to me, this is the most interesting um, uh, in some ways. Is And this is not the only example. There's actually... Uh, engagement of a set of networks that we find that are really quite, I don't want to say this, uh, but specific to humans, and we can talk about the neuroscience of this, but there's a series of regions that are involved in what we call theory of mind process. And what is theory of mind? It's your ability to put yourself in the shoes of the characters. Um, and so these regions are uh, engaged all the time when people are doing processing social information. And they're really engaged and associated with empathizing. So your abilities to empathize in some ways come out of processing in this network. Uh, and again, I don't know what's being empathized here with uh, <laughs> perhaps having your head cut off. Uh, it's not an experience you have had, hopefully. Um, <clears throat> so the take-home point is Fiction actually activates, and this is an extreme example, right? So this is an audio book, but you're activating all of these networks involved in visual processing, theory of mind processing, uh, action processing, uh, though all you're doing is listening to an audio book. So fiction actually activates these same networks as in real life. And I think, that, I think some questions perhaps for discussion might involve, um, and I think you guys are way more suited to answering this than me, uh, but what makes for compelling monsters um, uh, like Frankenstein. So Frankenstein, I, I think, for me at least, was compelling as Frankenstein's monster, I should say, sorry, uh, is compelling uh, because it not only engages fear circuitry, but it engages circuitry involved in empathy. You really empathize with the, the plight of Frankenstein's monster. Um, and so we're in a position now in neuroscience to be able to compare and contrast different kinds of genres of horror, right? So I can compare uh, the kinds of monsters that are depicted in Frankenstein, which might involve more empathy, to uh, genres like uh, body horror genres, in which um, presumably you have very little ability to empathize with observing other people, cutting people open and things. And so... We can now do things like say, what are the networks that are involved differentially in processing this information? But also we can do kind of insidious things too. So um, we've been working with, um, uh, with companies to try to maximize uh, the engagement of specific networks that would maximize your fear um, uh, with regard to particular kinds of 
monsters. So for example, we might uh, really you set your empathy levels to this level, but really raise uh, sort of uh, fear processing networks. And so we can play around with these things by, by testing different versions of the same monsters and see what actually yields um, engagement of different networks in different ways. And so, yeah, that's what I do. Mm. <laughs> So what you do is use science to figure out how to really scare us. That's what we're working yeah. on. <laughs> that is scary. Um, I, I w wondered uh, if we could start off. One thing that struck me, in, um, s certainly in, in what uh, both of you two talked about, is how a lot of our modern monsters, in contrast to the classical ones, and perhaps it, this really starts with Frankenstein, but if we think about... Mr. Hyde, we think about Dracula, and we think about you know, the whole zombie genre now. They're all humanoid. They're all a bit like us. In fact, often they can pass for being us, whereas these classical monsters, these chimeras, these hydras, and so on, are very clearly not. What, what, what's, what do you think is going on there? Why do the monsters of modernity need to look like us? There's sort of an interesting hinge point that actually Shelley's Frankenstein is sitting right on. And that is <clears throat> what you have in antiquity and sort of all the way up is you have this idea that there is this coupling, there is this connection between appearance and monstrosity. That you know a monster because you can look at it. You go, oh yes, I see the slathering jaws. Mm. Good. Shall get my sword. Um, you know, th 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 there is a way you can identify a monster when you look at it. What Shelley does, and it's it, it's fantastic, is she looks at that link and she is, makes the first steps towards breaking it, hmm. because the monster, which as Evan has given us, is described in this ghastly kind of language, but turns up and says, "I have read my Plutarch. I have read I have I have read my Plutarch, and I wish to have an ethical discussion with you at this stage about your behaviour so far as a creator. <laughs> you have let me down." Um, and actually has sort of a very rigorous intellectual conversation about his previous life. And that breaks down this idea that previously has existed, that you can spot a monster when you look at it. Um, and up until this point, that really has been an underlying principle. And in, in the whole point about Medusa, you can spot a monster when you look at her. <laughs> it won't be for very long, <laughs> but you will know about it. Um, but this connection, and then that becomes... Fragmented and, and Do Mr. Hyde as well. It's like you see, you see Dr. Jekyll, perfectly respectable man, up until the point when you don't see Dr. Jekyll anymore and instead you're seeing Mr. Hyde. Um, and what that does, what Shelley does by breaking that connection, is she puts us in the place where we now have films about serial killers, where we now have films about sort of going to non humanoids, things that we can't see, you know, the, the, the computer bug that's going to destroy everything, the, 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 the virus that nobody can see and ends up wiping out bobbies, or indeed creating zombies, just to merge the genres. Um, so it's sort of a, a, a turn that happens about decoupling the monstros monstrousness and appearance that actually lets things become rather more scary because we can't see them anymore, which is one reason why the classical monsters are so interesting, because we take this retrograde step back where we can actually see monsters again. We do know what they look like again, which is why it's so interesting that they are still being used, despite the fact we get, you know, 
if you think about horror films and you think about serial killers and you think about all the horrible things that people come up with, but it, the whole point about why they're scary is you don't know about them until they're too late. Mm. Whereas you can see a classical monster a mile off. Sorry, Evan. Oh, that that <coughs> ties in to these ideas about uh, a legible body, that the body is readable. So you, which ties into ideas um, that if you had a nasty accident and you got damaged, it was some kind of judgment from God, that God was marking you out as being different. And people like to project this back into the past and go, oh, the medieval period, if you lost a leg, that was it, you'd be begging on the street, no one would ever take you seriously again. Well, yes and no. These ideas are never just completely all-encompassing. It's never everybody believes everything at any one time all over the world, and we should all know that by now. But there are these uh, dominant ideas in different eras. And so in the Enlightenment, so we've got 1600s, 1700s, people start thinking about the body in different ways. So instead of thinking about the body and saying a visible monster must be evil and someone who is beautiful must be good, the philosophers, so you've got um, the third Earl of Shaftesbury, um, round about mm, 1709, going off that, well, obviously truth is beauty and beauty is goodness, so... And other people going, oh, hang on, mate. Nonsense. So there's this big debate going on about how you read the body and whether um, it's simple, the link between beauty and goodness in the human being specifically. Mm. It might be true in the, in the wider world that um, a, uh, a cliff face is dangerous and therefore it is ugly and uh, a beautiful pastoral meadow is beautiful and therefore it's safe. But then you get people like Edmund Burke coming along and going, well, the cliff is sublime. To experience terror is a form of beauty as well. So you've got all these ideas going around in this period where this uncoupling happens. And this is something that the Gothic really gets into, especially with um, women and queer authors writing a lot of it. This idea that you can't trust what people look like. Uh, you can't just trust this nice man who says he'll marry you and live, you'll live the rest of your life in safety. No, he's going to lock you in a dungeon and take all your money. Um, this idea of the wicked stepmother, wicked stepfather, who look very beautiful on the surface and encourage people and get into the family and then destroy it from within is a very popular trope in this era. And it's all tied to this decoupling that Liz mentions. And the other thing that strikes me from that discussion, too, is the emotions. And from what you were talking about, Jeremy, too, it made me think about this, the emotions that these monsters are meant to arouse in us. You know, you see a hydra and you feel fear, sure. But it seems to me that a lot of these newer monsters, again, starting with Frankenstein, disgust is perhaps the big emotion. Do you, I mean, are you able to look at that, for one thing? Can <laughs> yeah, you see so, uh, disgust in the weirdly, brain? Uh, weirdly, I have a, a close friend who studies uh, the neuroscience of robots, and uh, there's something called the uncanny valley where, uh, where you know, the robots... Uh, you want people to interact with these robots and be friendly with them. And so if they're too human-like, people are disgusted by them. Uh, and if they're um, too mechanical, people also don't want to interact with them. So there's this nice place in between where you want to interact with robots. And, and she, she does neuroscience looking at 
at how you engage brain regions. So, uh, so you can, she's showing that you, you basically have the same, same response function in, say, emotional networks. So uh, you engage more emotional networks, whatever that means. Uh, you know, uh, if, if the, the robot looks not quite human, but not quite, uh, not quite robotic. So I, I imagine that somehow maps on to. Mm, yeah. And it, it ties into this idea. This idea that, uh, of bonding with, um, with something that you read or see, some fictional creature that you, you kind of wish was real. That's why, you know, teenage girls get really into Edward Cullen. They wish that there was this beautiful guy who listened when they said no and was really into consent, but <laughs> there isn't. Uh, so, so you've got fictional monsters that people want to be real. And I think that's one of the things that um, why the monster never quite dies and keeps coming back again mm. is because we've kind of formed this emotional cortex bond in some way with these creatures and mm. they represent something useful to us. So we might not want the hydra to come back because it terrified us and we cut off its heads, but the heads keep coming back. So we still see the same idea that the monster can never really be defeated mm. in these classical texts and this, this link between fear and disgust, but desire and attraction. Um, we want these things to kind of be there and available for us to use mm. and to link with and to explore ideas with. Um, and I think that that's one of the reasons that we never want the creature to die. It's not just because it can keep making us jump, but it's because... It's, and I think it's one of, the reasons, one of the things that we can see in sort of slasher movies where the bad guy becomes the hero. Mm. Why does... Freddy, Jason, etc., move from the monster position to the hero position because we can do things with them representationally. We can feel things with them. We can go on this journey with them. Um, I think it's the th third or the fifth. Sorry, I've been watching an awful lot of horror movies for this thesis. I can't remember which of the Freddy movies, but we find out his backstory, that his mother was raped horribly and he's a child that was conceived of rape in a psychiatric hospital, and he never knew his father. He never grew up with a mother because she went mad. And is this trauma of the body and the brain that he and his mother have suffered? That's not in the first film. He's just a monster that comes from dreams. He's a, he's a scary paedophile. That's his backstory then. But then we start uncovering more. We uncover the idea of the cycle of abuse, which anyone who's ever watched an episode of Law and Order Special Victims Unit is very familiar with this idea. And so the more we find out about why and how we become who we are, the more we do that with our monsters as well, I think. Well, this too is what strikes me. Monsters now have backstories. We never got the Gorgon's backstory, did we? Or the Hydras? Or no, we did. We did we did, we did. we didn't. Well, it depends who you're reading. And it depends <laughs> what it's for. Um, you get some backstory. So the, 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 the Hesiod that I mentioned before, the Hesiod basically tells you who begat who, for want of a better word. So how did these come to be created? Who made them and how? Um, and you will sort of occasionally find lovely details, like, and they, they married this other monster, and they had lovely monster children, who Hercules then went on to kill. Um, three of them at once. Um, you know, the, the, this is the, you know, we do get that kind of story. But I mean, what's really fascinating, and I come back to Medusa because she's a really interesting example of it. When Medusa starts out, 
she is sort of very much a gorgon, very much sort of um, sort of boar tusked, you know, fearful thing on these sort of Greek pots in the fifth century. And she develops and she emerges. And by the time we get to the Roman poet Ovid in the first century AD, he writes this big, big poem called The Metamorphosis. It's his attempt to out Virgil Virgil. Virgil's done the foundation of Rome. Ovid goes, do you one better? Um, and decides he's going to write this whole poem about metamorphosis, about changes, and sort of everything about metamorphosis is people changing into other things. And you can kind of see why Medusa works, because she changes people to stone. Um, but she herself was also changed. So Ovid actually gives her a backstory, um, which is the first time we sort of have sort of... The, she, he is the best source we have. Caveat. Classical texts. Lots of holes. <laughs> so we don't know whether or not he is the first person to actually give her the backstory, but he is the first surviving example of the backstory we have. Um, and he gives the story that she used to be a girl uh, who served in the temple of the princess, uh, the goddess Athena, rather, virgin <laughs> goddess of wisdom. Um, and one day, uh, the god of the sea, Poseidon, took a liking to her and raped her. And Athena was so angry about this and so angry at the defilement done on her temple that she turned her into the Medusa we know with the snakes in the hair. It's not the only example of victim blaming in Ovid's work, let's put it that way. Um, Ovid is actually a weirdly sensitive, for, for his period, is actually weirdly sensitive to the experience of women's um, experiences of sexual violence. Um, he is a very sensitive poet about... Y you have to find the right translator because the number of translations who write about Medusa being seduced, mm -hmm. that's not the word Ovid uses. Um, but, you know, it, it is in there in Ovid, and Ovid is sort of very aware of this. So he does give us the backstory to this monster that is meant to be explaining that she wasn't always like that. And this is partly because of the big metamorphosis interest in changing things from one thing to the and other. And it's a backstory of violation that, exactly, as well. Exactly, and yeah. of that, and, and, and of sort of being pushed into this position against your will and not having the, the agency to change it. And, you know, so that as a story actually sort of lends itself to this kind of sympathy for the monster that we've seen in a lot of the recent approaches to it and sort of the sympathy we're now encouraged to feel for Frankenstein's monsters to getting to these things. So there are backstories there for some of these, some of these creatures, some of these monsters. Um, I mean, even Polyphemus, so the great familiar Cyclops, right, who Odysseus blinds when he goes into the cave. You can read that as an example of Odysseus being a really rubbish guest. <laughs> he goes in, he steals his cheeses, he kills his goats, and then wonders why he's cross. <laughs> right? Um, you, you, there, there, there are ways in which even sort of the Greeks and Romans are still playing with the idea of where is monstrosity coming from in these things. Um, so, I mean, it, it's something that we're coming back to, I think, in a bigger way, having gone through sort of this very scientific monsters are not us period. So, but it was sort of uh, being played with then. Well, I've got tons of questions, but I bet you have too. So I'm going to shut up and uh, open the floor to questions. Yes, please. Yeah. Um, thank you very much, everyone. Top notch. Um, I have a question about how much you think the attraction to monsters is about the potential, and not necessarily the actual thing, but the potential for breaking the, the moral codes. So you've got vampires who sparkle, but could bite you. Um, and, you know, let's face it, Bad Angel was way sexier than Good Angel and Buffy. So <laughs> as, a, as a level of attraction, and sexual and otherwise, how much do you think breaking the moral code is a, is a, 
an appealing thing about monsters. Mm. Do we start with the neuroscience on this one? <laughs> <laughs> We're so behind on neuroscience. <laughs> You're going to go back with lots of ideas for experiments yeah. you can now run and check. Yeah. Um, yeah. Angel versus Spike, which is officially sexier. <laughs> <laughs> Hear that? Um, sorry, to answer your question seriously. Um, yeah, I mean, I think definitely that idea of the, the, the desire of crossing over the line, right? The idea, the idea of seeing where the line is and obviously everybody's individual response to a monster is going to be different right but, i mean as uh, you know we're mapping on and we're seeing the neural networks happening but we mm -hmm. don't know you know right i don't know how many of you watch gogglebox um but they recently had sort of people responding to i think it was the exorcist that had been screened on channel four and there were sort mm -hmm. of people watching sort of the climactic scene of the, i've never seen it apart from the gogglebox clips but sort of watching the climactic scene of the exorcist and people sitting on the sofa going I bet this was really scary when it was first filmed. <laughs> um, but, you know, this is the, the kind of fact that the people who did first watch that were probably hiding behind the sofa cushions. I see some nods. Um, you know, so, so the, 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 uh, one individual's reaction is not going to be fixed in time. So for some people, absolutely, the same monster that, that one monster is going to have that appeal of crossing that border and other people are going to want to run a mile from it. But the point, I think, about the monster is it has the... It, it marks where the border is, and you decide whether you want to cross over or run a mile, whether you know whichever direction you're going in. I'd say that I think that this is particularly relevant to the vampire, which you mentioned. Yeah. So he starts off, um, if we if we're thinking about it in Gothic literature terms, the most well-known example is going to be something like um, Camilla from the mid 19th century, and then Dracula at the end, and they start off as seductive attractive, normative-looking, but a bit creepy. There's something a bit wrong with them. Um, you get that hint of uh, their appearance is suggestive of something not going right. Um, and people read into that queerness or racial suggestiveness. There's lots of readings of Dracula as being about um, uh, anti-Semitism in that era. And then when you get the film versions again we get this seductive we get very attractive actors to play them and at that point we have this creepy incestuous miscegenation idea of the wrong people coming in and seducing people but then by the time we've got to the mid-20th century and we've got um the british hammer horror um tradition it's really it's moved on from this idea of this infiltration of the norm by the other and it's this idea of, well, maybe the norm is dangerous. We've got these sexy, powerful men who are not doing anything different or wrong, perhaps, but they're seducing women. Well, ooh, is this, is this all right? Are we okay with this? You know? So you, you, get, you get these sort of waves and peaks of what is considered normative and what is considered healthy being explored in the same figure. So it starts off with, oh, there's an other coming to town. He's going to seduce your daughters. That's the otherness coming in. Um, and, th and then you get the idea of, oh, well, it's free love, so sex is okay, but, oh, he might turn them other. And then you move on to um, AIDS metaphors in the 70s and 80s mm. um, and drug addiction metaphors with the hunger and things like that. Mm. Um, but then we go back to near dark in the 80s with the invasion of people, the other, coming from out of town. So it's never just that we have 
Um, so the attraction, the seduction that's going on in every scene is central to the story. The monster, Dracula and the vampire, in most of these stories, wouldn't be able to be a monster if they weren't seductive. Of course, we've got other versions where, you know, these monsters are hanging around on the edge of town and leaping on people unsuspectingly. There are a few of those. And um, I think Blade 2, with the weird vampire that opens its mouth, is much more monstrous and can scale walls and drop on you from a great height. But some of these monsters are fully about being seduced by the dark side, about the attraction to um, wrongdoing. And... What is wrongdoing? What does it mean? And I think that's one of the really interesting things about the Dracula myth and the vampire, is that one, it relies on seduction to a mythical dark side, but who's really in the wrong at any one point? If anyone wants a really interesting version of that, Dracula's daughter from 1932, Mm -hmm. she's going to a psychiatrist to try and cure herself of her lusts for young women that she likes to drain but she kind of falls in love with the male psychiatrist with some weird projection. It's a very weird, and it's very mixed up, and there's lots of different undertones of who desires who, why do they desire it, why do you want to be rebellious or not rebellious? And it never, quite, and it never hangs together. It can't. It's too messy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's why we need monsters, because, yeah, being attracted to doing something that's wrong and then questioning the boundaries of whether it's wrong or not, it's so much easier to do when the when you have blue fur or pointy teeth or something like that than when it's just a worthy movie about what's going on in Syria, which you can only get 12 people to go and see. (laughs) Sadly. Donna Haraway, fantastic writer, 1980s. Uh, Good to hear her mentioned. I think uh, she's one of the few people who, in the realm of theory, made um, projections that we now see on the streets, you know, in real life about challenging uh, gender, dualities, etc. I wonder, however, um, as a, I'm a rehabilitated deconstructionist critic, you know, <laughs> uh, I, I wonder if certain kinds of normativity challenging have become normative in themselves. <laughs> and in some ways, Haraway's um, program is now mainstream diversity ideology. And meanwhile, taboos and monstrosity has perhaps, they've moved on, and there are new challenges. Can we take the the question? That's a great question, if I can um, uh, put it to to the panel now, about whether we have, uh, whether our ideas of norms have moved somewhere else, and our ideas of what is monstrous have moved somewhere else from where they were when people like Donna Haraway were challenging. Well, um, you get queer theorists like Lee Edelman writing back in the similar sort of period in the 80s and 90s uh, who argued that um, what happens is that the expansion of the norm envelops the other and makes it more normative and it neutralises it. So, for example, same-sex marriage um, doesn't give queer people more rights. What it does is says well, you can live like this, which is already a limiting lifestyle. You can move to the suburbs, you can raise your 2.4 kids, you can fit in this box that we'd already put everyone else in. How much freedom, how much... Uh, d- how, um, how rebellious is it? 
how much possibility for potential of otherness is still existing. And it's the same thing, uh, the idea that if you... Um, that we shouldn't expand the norm to include other people. We should break down what the idea that there is a norm, that normative is a good thing to be, that it's healthy to have some sort of central um, standardization. Um, it's something that Canguillem was thinking about in the 40s when he wrote On the Normal and the Pathological. He said that the body can only be judged in its own environment. So you take somebody who's born halfway up a mountain and you test their lung function there, and you take me and you put me halfway up a lung mountain and you do a lung function test, I'm going to be dreadful. I'm not going to function in that environment. And this is the thing about thinking about how people function in their environment and how we shape human environments for ourselves. Currently, we shape it to a norm. We've all heard about ergonomic chairs for the office. Well, they're built for a standard of something like five foot six to six foot. There are lots of people working in offices who are below five feet tall. Um, so we have this idea of implementation of a standard in the environment, a norm. And yes, I think that um, what monsters have always done is challenge this and what's considered normal. For example, the, exa the uh, backstory um, of uh, the forced seduction or rape, that already says, hey, maybe this isn't a good thing. Maybe uh, people shouldn't do this. And it's not that someone's going along and saying, oh, well, everyone was saying rape was a good thing in the ancient world, but there are standards of what's acceptable and what's not acceptable to be talked about and lived through. And I think the monsters and the monstrous always provide that space to challenge. And yes, the boundaries are always shifting, but I don't think there's any kind of idea of progression. I think that would be a Whiggish position to take. Do, do you want, I, that makes me wonder whether, in the, current con, in the context of what we're talking about then, whether when you see things like vampires being given their own community in the Twilight series, you know, that they, in a, in a sense, become the, the norm, or I, Frankenstein, being, you know, this slight, slight rugged hero who happens to have been a monster sometime ago. Is that, is that kind of diluting what monsters are? Possibly for. domestication. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's. Th I'm trying to remember who wrote it. I think it was Mark Commode wrote a very stinging piece about uh, Twilight when the film came on, sort of saying, you know, sparkly vampires sort of even fend them off with a cushion. <laughs> Not much to be seen here, you know. Very, very unimpressed. In, in those of you who are familiar with Mark Commode's style, if I've got the right order, I'm fairly sure I have, will be sympathising. Um, and I think there is something about domestication. And this is sort of uh, and the, where I think the idea I was sort of exploring there about giving classical monsters room to breathe comes in. Because when you sort of walk in and you provide that box, and you provide that, you know, here is the sit limits within which we're, we're putting this. And here is, here is where you get to be, monster. Have, have, your, have your suburb. <coughs> have your safe set of rules. And you do actually sort of demonster to some extent. You do take away the possibility to be scary. And one of the reasons that, you know, the Edward Cullen style Twilight vampires are so attractive is because they 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 are not actually offering you very much that you might not want. Um, whereas sort of if you and I'm comparing them here and showing my age um, to the vampires in the Anne Rice. Vampire Chronicles, where they're sort of much more tortured. We're all going mad because we're living for eternal time and this is all a bit rubbish kind of stuff. I mean, you know, and, and that, you know, the, the, the kind of ethical placement that um, <coughs> authors put their monsters in, I think, 
is key. And it's sort of perhaps not a surprise that domesticated, sanitized monster along sort of the Twilight vampire line gains the kind of popularity it does, um, precisely because of the ability to, to, to flirt with the danger of the monster. To, as I said, when you're looking at it on the screen, to sort of say, oh, look at the slavering jaws and the sparklies, but not actually to be going anywhere near danger. But I think when you have media which is willing to provide the space, then the monster, in whichever form it then takes, which is a risk, <laughs> obviously, to sort of let it loose like that, um, it remains a sharp... I think this is something that I thought was really interesting about Stranger Things. I don't know if people have watched it. Mm -hmm. Is that people always say, oh, with CGI, don't show the monster. Because everyone stops being frightened once you see the monster. And for the first few episodes, they didn't show the monster. And then when they did, and it's chasing them around, you're like, actually, that is, that's quite nasty, because that thing moves fast. It's a bit like aliens. You're like, that's actually quite nasty, and moves really fast, and is going to eat me. That's a predator right there. Um, and then in the second series, minor spoiler alert, um, one, of, <laughs> one of the boys finds a little creature and starts to raise it, and the other guy's are like, um... We think that might be a monster. That might be from the dark place. The underground, the, uh, what's it called? The um, upside down. The upside down. Yeah. And it still grows into a slavering beast that they're frightened of. But there's this interaction between them of can, how far can we tame this creature? And it's very much like um, Chris Pratt and Blue, um, the uh, Velociraptor, thank you. In, in the Jurassic World, in the first film, first three films, these monsters are just monsters that are coming to eat you. They're just apex predators that we should not have let loose because we are not apex predators. We are tiny little prey. And then in the next one, Chris Pratt's bonded with the velociraptors. <laughs> but they're still scary to everyone else. They still might eat him. And I think that there's that nice tension to be had between um, respecting the other and the dangerousness and the boundaries, even as you want to start crossing them and having that tension between how far can we go, how far is a good idea to go. And I think that there's, there's more of that coming out, which is quite interesting. Well, what I've learned tonight is that I want Evan's job. <laughs> um, but I'm afraid we've run out of if time. If anybody would like to give <laughs> Thank me a you. job. <laughs> yeah, whatever it is. Um, but yeah, we have run out of time. I'm terribly sorry. Thank you so much. And maybe you still have some questions you can ask us afterwards. Thank you. That's it for this month. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a big difference. And if you'd like to support our work, head to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the Royal Institution. You can donate as little as $1 a month and you'll get access to exclusive content, early releases and digital freebies. Thanks. <laughs>